Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On May 5th, 2020, a couple named Val and Holly Johnson officially make a decision that has been stewing for months. They decide to file a lawsuit against one of the world's largest healthcare companies, Johnson & Johnson. In their lawsuit, they say that Johnson & Johnson sold them talc-based baby powder that had asbestos in it, a known carcinogen. They conspired. This was, this was not an accident that they did this. That's Val. He's 61 years old, and he and his wife Holly say that Val's use of Johnson's baby powder led to his diagnosis of mesothelioma. He found out that he had this rare and deadly form of cancer just months earlier. If they would have taken care of this when they first knew about it, I would have never been sick. I would still be healthy today. I could be off hiking mountains and uh, traveling and seeing the world and doing the many things I've wanted to do. It takes more than a year after they file their initial lawsuit, but eventually Val has his day in court. In court was very, very hard. I testified for, I think it was a day and a half. J&J's attorney was just nasty, mean. He accused me of, of, and I, exa I forget exactly how he put it, but he accused me of being like the people in the Salem witch trials. After Val gives his testimony, he goes back home and waits. And on Tuesday, October 12th, he receives a phone call. And finally, he gets some news. The jury on his trial had made their decision. They determined that Johnson & Johnson's talc baby powder was an important factor in Val developing mesothelioma. And not only that, but also that Johnson & Johnson as a company had acted with, quote, malice or fraud, unquote, as well as negligence, which led to Val's mesothelioma. The jury awards Val $27 million. I, I kind of felt like there was some justice in the world. The decision wouldn't change Val's condition, but he knew that at least his wife Holly and his family would be taken care of after he dies. But then, just two days later, Val gets another surprise. It turns out that Johnson & Johnson has undergone a unique legal maneuver known as the Texas Two-Step. It's a funny-sounding name, but it has serious implications for Val and for thousands of others. Part of that maneuver involved hitting pause on all ongoing litigation it had with its creditors, like Val. And this means that after all this time, Val's verdict is now up in the air. It was um, devastating, heartbreaking to 
um, realize because with that, it's very unlikely I'll even be around to hear how that turns out. I, I felt there was justice and then I felt there was not justice. It wasn't just because of Val that Johnson & Johnson underwent the two-step. In the fall of last year, the company was facing nearly 40,000 lawsuits like Val's. They were all from people alleging that one of its oldest products, its talc-based baby powder, had given them cancer. Companies weighed down by personal injury lawsuits argue that this unusual legal move is the best way to handle these sorts of claims. They say it provides for a more streamlined and equitable way to address thousands of these sorts of lawsuits. Critics argue that it's slowing down justice and that it's taking away people's right to having their day in court. And other companies are watching Johnson & Johnson to see how their case will play out. On today's episode, we examine whether Johnson & Johnson's Texas two-step maneuver is setting a new precedent for corporations to evade accountability in America. I'm Michaela Chindera, and this is Behind the Money. Before Val's diagnosis, he loved to go hiking where he lives now in Utah. His hikes put him on top of the world, almost literally. I climbed Mount Whitney. It's uh, 14,500 and change feet high. Um, So I spent a year preparing for that and climbed it. And I did a couple of canyons here in Utah. One of the most famous ones that I did is the... Narrows, Zion Narrows, which is about, a, I forget, something like 18-mile hike um, through the river. Beautiful. But within a few years, things took a drastic turn. The doctor called me up and was on the phone was like, uh, you have mesothelioma. Do you know what that is? And I'm like, I- I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it is. And he said, it's asbestos cancer. It didn't really register when I first heard it. Um, I didn't know um, hardly anything about it. And I've since learned, of course, a lot more um, that it's essentially a death sentence, that there's, there's not really any cure for it. After he got that call from his doctor, Val was flabbergasted. He couldn't think of how he had been exposed to a carcinogen like asbestos. At first glance, it was like, how did I get mesothelioma? Um, where would it have come from? The, um, it, the It's typically, I guess, from shipyards and construction sites and stuff, but I've always worked an office job. Val says that after his diagnosis, he did some research online and he came across an investigation that had been published by Reuters back in 2018. Now a bombshell report from Reuters says company documents show J&J knew from at least 1971 to the early 2000s that its raw talc and finished powders sometimes tested positive for small amounts of asbestos and failed to disclose it. I thought about it, and I've used um, Johnson & Johnson baby batter since I was four years old. 
um, and I've used it through almost all of my life. Val says he used it on himself, and he used it on his children when they were babies. He also found another use for it later in life. One of his sons, Joey, was born with a chromosome deletion. He died in May 2019 when he was 26 years old. But throughout his life, he needed round-the-clock care. He wore diapers into his 20s, needed compression bandages to address bed sores, and also eventually wore a wetsuit so he wouldn't scratch at his own skin. Val says he would apply baby powder to his son's body to help with all of those things. And I had no idea that it had asbestos in it, obviously, or I wouldn't have used it. baby powder from Johnson and Johnson. It'll keep you comfortable. Take it from a baby. If you had a baby or were a baby sometime over the last century, there's a good chance that you've used some sort of Johnson's baby product. They're wipes or lotions or shampoos or perhaps their talc-based powder. With slogans like their shampoos, No More Tears, They promised products that were safe and gentle enough for babies. But that all changed with reports that asbestos was mixed in with its talc-based baby powder. J&J has said that its products are safe and has denied that its baby powder contains asbestos and causes cancer. But still, people began to sue the company. Here's the FT's U.S. pharmaceuticals correspondent, Jamie Smith. A woman named Jacqueline Fox files a personal injury lawsuit against J&J. In it, she claims that she ended up with ovarian cancer after using Johnson's baby powder for more than 35 years. Jacqueline dies before her case is decided, but a jury ends up awarding her family $72 million in 2016. Later, her case is actually overturned on a technicality, but that opens a floodgate for future claims. In 2016, the year that Jacqueline's family receives her verdict, it's one of roughly 500 other cancer-related lawsuits filed against the company. Four years later, that number balloons to more than 25,000 complaints. To put that into perspective, Johnson & Johnson said in a court filing that by January 2020, they were being served with, on average, one or more ovarian cancer complaints every hour of the day every single day of the week. J&J says that it's won more of these cancer-related lawsuits than it's lost. But it has lost at least one very large one. In 2018, a Missouri jury orders Johnson & Johnson to pay nearly $4.7 billion in damages to a group of nearly two dozen women who claim they got cancer from using Johnson's talc products. That $4.7 billion figure was later reduced roughly in half. But J&J continues to appeal the case. And it gets pushed all the way up to the Supreme Court. But in June of last year, the Supreme Court declines to review the case. That means that J&J will have to pay out more than $2 billion in damages. This is a big blow to Johnson & Johnson. 
And this is a big turn in our story. The moment where Jamie Smith thinks everything changed. I think the key moment when J&J pushed the button on doing this Texas two-step mechanism was probably when the Supreme Court rejected that appeal. The company warned that the cost of the litigation could become unsustainable, and therefore it started to look for different ways that it could deal with it. And this is where the Texas two-step enters the picture. This whole mechanism sort of relies on this 1989 statute that was passed by the Texas state legislature on divisive mergers. That's Jamie again. Jamie says the law was originally passed as a way to make it easier to do corporate spinoffs. But now, years later, it's being used as step one in this Texas two-step move. So here's how the whole thing works. Step one. First, you have to register as a corporate entity in Texas. And then split into two. The divisive merger statute in Texas makes it an easier process to do this compared to other states. As it makes that split, it decides how to divvy up its assets and liabilities between the two parts. In Johnson & Johnson's case, the company's consumer product subsidiary that had been selling the talc baby powder and the existing pharmaceutical and medical device divisions keep their assets, the valuable functioning parts of the company. Some people have dubbed this the Good Co. And a second company is set up to hold the liabilities. So in J&J's case, they set up a new company. But a second company is formed as well to hold all the talc liabilities. And this is called LTL Management, which we can call the Bad Co. So now there are two separate companies. And that's step one. Now we can move on to step two. For step two, this new company that's now holding the liabilities, what some call the bad co, goes ahead and files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So that's how the two-step works. But there are a lot of disagreements over who this process is really benefiting. The company or the claimants. One disagreement is over the settlement. In Chapter 11, the idea is to come up with a settlement dollar figure that both the debtors and the creditors can agree on. And as you might guess, that can be easier said than done. There's no certainty that these trusts have enough money to pay out all the victims. And that's another key criticism of the system. So the use of the two-step mechanism really follows a pattern over recent years, whereby debtors have deployed much more aggressive tactics to deal with creditors in bankruptcy cases. Johnson & Johnson has already proposed setting up a $2 billion settlement trust for victims. And the company denies that it's walking away from its liabilities. But because there are thousands of tout claimants, those claimants say that's not nearly enough. Still, J&J has said that going through the bankruptcy process actually ends up creating a more what they call equitable and efficient way of dividing and paying out money to victims. Jamie says that J&J has described the previous system of going through each case one by one like a lottery system. A few claimants receive astronomical awards from juries and others get nothing. They say it's unfair. They claim it's being abused by trial lawyers who they're effectively saying are like ambulance chasers going out 
recruiting people for these uh, cases. And they say they've really come under an unrelenting assault over the last five years. There's another concern, too. It has to do with something called an automatic stay. When a company goes into bankruptcy, the company is basically allowed to press pause on any lawsuits that have been filed against it. And that is exactly what happened with Val's case. So as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the verdict in Val's trial is delivered on October 12, 2021. Two days later, Johnson & Johnson's new company created by the two-step, called LTL, files for bankruptcy. It's not necessarily like Val was going to get a check for $27 million in the mail the week that he received his verdict. J&J appealed Val's verdict before the pause kicked in. But now, all of that is on hold while this bankruptcy process takes place. Given that many of these cancer sufferers do not have long to live, it really puts undue pressure on them to make settlements, even if such a settlement is far below what a jury would award. Meanwhile, for the company, the pressure is sort of lifted. Because the assets and liabilities were split into two separate companies, the one with the assets is allowed to just continue on, sort of business as usual. Without companies feeling that pressure to settle, it raises the question, if J&J is able to section off its liabilities in this way, could that inspire other companies to do the same thing? If you take the position that you, um, the company should be allowed to se- sort of sever the burdens from bankruptcy from the benefits from bankruptcies, you know, what's to stop, for example, the next time you have a big oil spill? That's Jared Elias. He's a law professor and corporate bankruptcy expert at the UC Hastings College of the Law. You now are terrified of all the lawsuits against you. So you do a Texas two-step, you put those liabilities into bankruptcy, and then you can just wait for years and litigate and you know, stall a settlement. And during that time, evidence can spoil. Um, people who are harmed will die. Um, and all of the you know, sort of motivation to settle quickly just disappears when a company doesn't have assets in bankruptcy. After J&J's LTL management filed for bankruptcy last October, it was immediately challenged by Tal claimants. The Tal claimants' lawyers argued that, you know, J&J is in no way in financial trouble. It's a corporation with a AAA credit rating. It is worth almost half a trillion dollars. So it's unfair to say that these potential payouts could, you know, could force it into bankruptcy. That was one of their key arguments. The Tau claimants also said that J&J's maneuver was taking away their right to a jury trial and that it was putting an unfair cap on how much money they would receive in settlements. And then J&J argued that they were facing litigation costs of up to $190 billion related to the cancer complaints. They said that amount of money posed a severe threat to the company's finances. But after a hearing in February, the bankruptcy judge on the case denied the Tauk claimant's motion to dismiss. He said that they hadn't proven that J&J had acted in, quote, bad faith, unquote, by placing LTL into bankruptcy. He stated in the ruling that the bankruptcy court is the optimal 
venue for redressing the harms of both present and future Tulk claimants. He said it would be more efficient to do it this way rather than for J&J and the claimants to go through every single one of these 38,000 cases, which could take an, an awful long time. But it's important to note that the legal debate really isn't over yet. After the decision in February, the Tau claimants responded by filing an appeal. So this means that once again, the Tau claimants will have the opportunity to try to prove that a bankruptcy court is not the right place to hear these sorts of cases. But still, there are concerns. If this case fails in the appeals court and Johnson & Johnson is allowed to proceed with its bankruptcy, it could establish a roadmap for more companies to use this Texas two-step maneuver. Earlier this year, Jamie was reporting on the two-step when he picked up on something interesting. I started to notice that Jones Day kept popping up in these four different cases involving uh, this procedure. Jones Day is one of the largest law firms in the country. And Jamie says that Jones Day is the architect of the Texas two-step. So when you look through the court documents, it shows that Jones Day has successfully marketed the two-step mechanism to four companies. All of them are facing billions of dollars in asbestos-related personal injury litigation. If you're not familiar with how big law firms operate, It might sound weird that a law firm would market a specific bankruptcy maneuver to potential clients, but corporate bankruptcy expert Jared Elias says that's basically these lawyers' jobs. And so it appears that, you know, Jones Day is, you know, at at the leading edge of implementing this new Texas two-step strategy. Um, And that's entirely in line with what their role as attorneys would suggest they should be doing. And the question is, um, will the courts tell them and their clients that this is wrong, or are they you know, pioneering a new way to use the bankruptcy system? Right now, there are just four known examples of corporations that are using the Texas two-step. There's Johnson & Johnson, but also affiliates of three other manufacturing businesses. There's a part of Georgia Pacific, as well as Train Technologies and St. Gobain. The first company to use the Texas two-step was an affiliate of Georgia Pacific, which is owned by the massive conglomerate Coke Industries. They first filed for bankruptcy in 2017 with the help of Jones Day. Jamie has reported that it's been pretty lucrative for Jones Day to advise these companies over the last few years. In fact, records show that Jones Day has claimed more than $70 million in court-approved bankruptcy fees from these four companies. This is probably just a fraction of what the law firm has earned through this because these fees do not apply to uh, the advisory fees which the company gets paid prior to filing for the bankruptcy. Jones Day has declined to answer questions or comment on its role in the Texas two-step bankruptcy process. However, we did come across a recent recording from a panel that one attorney from Jones Day named Greg Gordon spoke on. He's a partner at Jones Day's office in Texas where he specializes in Chapter 11 restructurings. And he's worked on these Texas two-step cases for Jones Day. In late April, he spoke at the American Bankruptcy Institute's annual spring meeting. 
and he says he's quite fond of the two-step. I, of course, think the divisional merger is the greatest innovation in the history of bankruptcy. He also says that the J&J case was the worst he's seen. For many years, I've been involved with companies with asbestos liability, and, and those liabilities are very difficult uh, for companies to deal with because of the thousands of claims they would get every year and just the inability, frankly, to defend themselves and ended up settling those cases um, just to save defense costs was literally impossible to litigate the cases. But at least with asbestos, um, you had a situation where it was recognized that asbestos was a dangerous product. But he says companies that made it known that asbestos was in their products had at least some sort of defense in court. Remember, J&J denies that their product contains asbestos. When J&J came to us, I mean, their situation was far worse from the perspective of both the company and the claimants, uh, because in only about five years, they had ramped up from virtually zero cases. And these are cases uh, based on an argument that Johnson's baby powder causes disease. From literally nothing to they had almost 40,000 cases pending. Um, at the time of the filing. And that, that's just an unbelievable um, scenario to me. Greg also tells the panel that this makes it tough for J&J to litigate each and every one of these cases. How do you deal with the fact you're getting 10000 more per year and they're anticipated to continue for the next 50 years? What do you do about that as a company, no matter how big you are? But then look at it from the standpoint of the claimants. It was awful from their perspective, too, because it was literally, and this gets reported in the press, but I think it's true, it was literally like a lottery for the claimants. The large majority of the claimants lost. J&J might be the worst two-step case Greg has seen, but it may not be the last one his firm works on. Jamie says there's been interest from other companies to try out the two-step. This includes 3M, which is accused of producing defective earplugs for the U.S. military. It's faced hundreds of thousands of lawsuits, and it's lost 10 out of 16 trials as of this June. And this could be ripe for a Texas two-step style mechanism to try and help the company with those claims. There's also Dow Chemical, which faces 9,000 claims tied to cancer. More eyes will be watching how J&J's case unfolds. It's caught the attention of members of Congress. There was a congressional hearing that discussed the two-step in February, and Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois has expressed interest in drafting legislation to reform this process. But then there is at least one person who isn't paying attention too closely anymore. Val. Val says that while sometimes friends will send him articles about the bankruptcy case, he hasn't really kept up with what's going on. I suspect I don't have a lot longer to live. I keep getting worse and worse. The last three months have been very difficult. Um, but <coughs> but um, I'm focused. Again, I always come back to the, the signs of a successful life. I can just still walk and I can still drive and I'm loving life and enjoying. You know, you go outside today here and it's uh, 60 degrees or something. Our bulbs blossomed this week in our yard, and we have beautiful purple and yellow and white flowers growing in our yard. I came in from my drive, and I saw those in our front yard. I came into my wife, and I told her about the bulbs that were blossoming, and I said, that makes me so happy. I'm focused on 
enjoying the life that I have and I'm not really following it very much. Behind the Money is hosted and produced by me, Michaela Tendera. Stephanie Horton is our contributing producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Jessica Dye. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week.